Hey guys, welcome to Church and Other Drugs for a special simulcast uh, episode. I think that's the right word. Uh, doublecast, simulcast. We're going to be putting the same episode out on two podcasts. This is going to be a crossover episode with You Have Permission with my favorite, favorite uh, theologian, wise man of, of philosophies and sciences, a learned uh, counselor now, therapist, social worker, Dan Coke, my favorite, Dan Coca-Cola. Um, and we are going to talk about my issues with a humanist view of Christianity. What does that mean? I don't really know, but hear me talk about it. And Dan, and it's a, it was an awesome conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I have got um, some really good episodes in the pipe. Uh, next week's going to be me and Matt Oxley all about, I went on a very long educational spiel about opiates. Uh, it was super fun. Look for that. I'm talking to Hayne from Pastor With No Answers. All sorts of good stuff. So enjoy this. Um, and I'm looking forward to having my child soon. Some people have asked, by the way, and I will be posting a link to uh, my Venmo if you, if you feel inclined to support uh, a not well-off uh, podcaster who's about to have a child. I'll post that in the show notes. Um, absolutely no requirements, but uh, people have asked, so I'm going to put it on there. And uh, send me an email, churchandotherdrugs at gmail.com. Another way to support me is patreon.com slash drugs. Thank you, Jess Garriga, for her new uh, patronage, much appreciated, and uh, enjoy the episode. With Jesus Christ, you will get right up from that chalk outline, and then you'll get dolled up, and you'll dress in white, or to take your place. Jed Payne, host of Church and Other Drugs, substance abuse counselor, personal friend of mine. You've been on the show before. We talked about your own journey from drug addiction to working in that field. That was almost three years ago. Episode 97. That's bizarre to hear. Isn't that crazy? That's really crazy. One of the things that we end up talking about, and so the reason I wanted to have you on for one of these worries about progressive Christianity. And if it's not exactly progressive Christianity that you are concerned with or find unconvincing or whatever, you can kind of rephrase that to, to whatever is most accurate. So let's just start there. Like what, what would you call it? So is it progressive Christianity or what are the, what's the specific stuff that you're like, 
I think you believe this, Dan, and I'm not convinced by it, or I don't think it's helpful, or I don't think it's going to work. I think maybe I see the more progressive side as a more like humanist approach. Okay. So like one of the biggest differences is, is going to be and has been what we believe about miracles, the supernatural. Yeah. When I say humanist, and I guess that's what bothered me when this movement was kind of starting, um, because it it seemed like everyone just took this mindset of, oh, the church like hurt me and I'm going to like recreate this like softer God that just so happens to fill all my philosophical and scientific needs is basically it, it seems selfish to me in a way. D- does that make sense? There's a convenient version of God that people came to believe in that just so happened to align with other things that they exactly are leaning toward or find true. So, I mean, already you, you might know where I'm going to go with that and we can put a pin in it for now. You think that there's a lot more sort of choice and will in that than I think that there is. I, I think people are essentially backed into that corner if they're paying attention to their own intuitions, to what they're finding. But uh, I just want to say that because I like to plant a flag for listeners who might not feel seen or heard, but we will, we will discuss that. So, but you say humanist, when, when mm. I think of humanism, I think of sort of the, I think of secular humanism. I think of like post-World War II, kind of like a international consensus on human rights and, and maybe using, using our scientific tools to kind of promote human flourishing absent a theological or religious framework for that work. People disagree on what counts as human flourishing, but it's like we're, we're working towards uh, a flourishing humanity, but we are not doing it with reference to God or any particular religion. Is that basically how you're using that term? Yeah, and it, it may not be exactly correct. It is just like starkly different than the particular like Calvinist-esque view of like total depravity of man. Sure. It it seems like the more progressive view is that no, no, not at all. Like humans are like we are wonderful and great. And if we just band together, like we can fix things and everything can be great and utopia. And so that's kind of what I mean by it. Um, Yeah. I think my issue with it is at some point you may just need to stop calling it Christianity. One of the big points of AA is uh, make your own conception of God, God as Mm -hmm. we understood him. And I seem to find that more often than not, people shape a God that, shocker, allows and endorses everything that they do, right? Let's call it, yeah, let's call it worries about a humanistic Christianity or something like that. And I'll put humanistic in quotes because people will understand that you're kind of defining that in your own way, that is, I understand what you're saying. I think it's a close enough to sort of the way we, people would write about that term and and you've kind of outlined it pretty well here. So let, let's roll with that. Let's, okay. let's start at AA. Um, if for no other reason than, you know, I had a recent episode with, with uh, Sam Outlaw talking about sobriety and spirituality within sobriety. And that's an interesting place to start. Cause I, I think I have a different intuition than you do. And it actually surprises me, I'll be honest, since you are uh, an addictions counselor. When I think of AA's kind of and other 12-step programs, so Al-Anon, Nar-Anon, NA, 
you know, that, that openness to letting people define the spiritual or their own higher power in ways that make sense to them. The way that I think about that as a therapist is I love that because it basically, essentially, here's the model in my mind. Everybody has, almost everybody has the capacity for spirituality. Now we have to be careful about how we define that, but I'll just use Lisa Miller's definition from Columbia University. Spirituality is belief in or interaction with a higher power that is both loving and guiding. That's that's kind of where she draws. I think that's as good of a definition okay. as any. Sure. Right? So that capacity for spirituality is one of humanity's choices for fuel to get through hard times toward where we want to go. So I often talk about this with clients. We'll do like values work or kind of vision slash goals work. Like where, where are you aiming to be? What kind of person do you want to be? What do you find most valuable? And people can call on that in a time where they're facing something difficult. So if you're trying to stay sober, you call on that in a moment when you are trying to avoid this drink and trying to get one more day sober. And to to restrict that power, I mean, in my mind, I think I would say in any way is a disservice to people who are, I want them to have access to that power and I do not want it to be restricted to any particular conception of the spiritual. And and the reason for that is that what is true about the spiritual, if anything, is a matter of debate by intelligent and faithful people, but that that person is able to not have another drink or take another hit is unambiguously good, you know, for that person. So I'll take, I'll take the 100% good, even if I'm like, fuzzy on the details and might disagree with their, you know, calling on whoever or whatever they want to call on. Like, I'll take that. And part of me would think that in the addiction space, you would feel that way too. And I don't, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but maybe you can respond to that. No. So agree wholeheartedly. And, and I've had to actually not fight, but back against really hardline religious folk yeah. that, that, we're like, why can't it, it? God is God. There's no. And I had to be like, so my, the example I use is that, is that I, I had a client once that was molested as a child. And while they were being molested, uh, the person was reciting the Lord's Prayer. Gosh. So. Gosh. They, to, to, to say that they had an explosive reaction to the G word was, was an understatement, yeah. right? So a little AA history, that that part um, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore to sanity. There's a, a part um, gave our lives to the care of God as we understood him. That part is in italics because it was added later on, uh, which was genius. So when it started out, it was um, AA was a, a branch off of the Oxford group, like a small religious movement. And uh, Jesus Christ used to be the one higher power in the group. And then they came to this realization that like, hey, this needs to be inclusive, not exclusive. So they they added that part. And I think it's, yes, absolutely genius and absolutely wonderful in the addiction and the therapy space. Yes. But I also have seen its pitfalls. And one of the pitfalls is 
if I make up Dan and I don't know Dan, I don't trust Dan, right? I'm not really going to rely on Dan. I'm not really going to be seeking wisdom from Dan because I don't know who Dan is. I think it is a wonderful to start your seeking journey, right? And even in the, the big book, it says some people will return to the religion of their youth. Others go to different stuff. There's a pretty big Eastern, like Buddhist, Hindu movements in AA right now. A lot of, you know, inner enlightenment, meditation. Yeah. That sort of thing. What I've seen, if you just kind of leave it at, well, there's just kind of this nebulous thing that, you know, I know it's this, I know it's that. Yes, that is helpful, but I think it's helpful to a point. I'll never push the issue. I'll never push it. With a client, Unless, sure. With a client. Now, sponsees, if somebody has that mindset. Um, it's different, and yeah. Then, yeah, and then they experience multiple relapses. That's kind of sit down and be like, okay, so maybe let's take a look at this. Maybe sure. this part of it is yeah. not really working for you. Yeah. And in the addiction space, especially, our brains are manipulative conniving and self-centered to the max. And so it can be dicey. It can be dicey. Yeah. You're kind of talking about the difference between like a fully fleshed out religious system and a more ad hoc spirituality. This was the reason I stayed out of AA. I used it as a reason to tell my parents that it was full of crap, that that it was Hmm. a cult because look at this, like God, as we understood him, It wasn't until that last time that I had to seriously humble myself and say, oh, wait a minute. This is just literally a practical roadmap to live out any faith spirituality that you want. I was like, oh, okay, perfect. I fought against being dogmatically religious about this particular thing. Yeah. Well, when I when I use religious system, I don't use religion as a pejorative. I, I, I mean it. I mean it in a kind of a scholarly sense of like just just the facts, right? So Yeah, okay. I think I would agree with you if if what you're saying is someone who's trying to maintain sobriety or I would say just really someone just trying to live a good life in almost any way, barring certain types of trauma that would make religious communities unhelpful for them. For the average person, statistically speaking, you know, a more fully fleshed out uh, healthy religious community with some more particularity around it is going to present at least a different set of, of benefits than a sort of ad hoc, you know, spirituality as someone understands it on a day when, when they happen to, but see, I'm already kind of waiting it a little bit by assuming that those people only go there when it's convenient for them. Right. It's really hard here. One thing I know is that in the peer-reviewed literature, both religiosity and spirituality are associated with almost all the same benefits. And I'm not super clear on where the distinctions break down between the two of them. I know there are some things for which a more fully fleshed out religion uh, is going to do a better job, probably because not least the connections you will have with more other people who see eye to eye with you. And that gives you more opportunities for community. And there's just nothing for a a healthy human mind, like other minds that care about it and and can communicate that to it. Right. Absolutely. But people also get that with their AA groups. I mean, they, they get that in other forms as well. And so I, you know, we have to be careful 
not to to say more than is substantiated by the research in those kind of empirical domains of like, you know, staying sober, you know, et cetera. That's funny you said that. This came up last night. I was having a phone call with my mom. I'm going to be a dad by November 6th, so it's coming up quick. Congratulations. And by the way, let me just say this, Jed. I don't know if you know this. I was talking with all these people at Theology Beer Camp. I never made an announcement, but we're also having another kid in December. <gasps> yeah, you. I told you. Uh, I know. <laughs> but nobody knew about it because we just kind of dragged our feet on making a personal announcement, and I didn't want to make a a podcast announcement before a personal mm-hmm. announcement. And then we just never did. And then I never did. Uh, but little, little, little boy. Number two is probably coming in probably middle of December. We'll see. So we're both going to awesome. be, we're going to be texting, uh, which movies are good to rewatch when you are dead exhausted in the middle of the night, feeding the baby. Absolutely. How many times, so- what's the over under on how many times we will collectively watch oceans 11 again. <laughs> and just rewatch all those. They're so fun to watch. 11, 12, so. 13. Nice. Okay. All right. Sorry, I cut you off there. Keep okay. going. Okay. So talking to my mom and she um, was, uh, I, I brought up, I'm already getting scared about raising my kid in this, in this, in this world. And the conversation eventually got to, yeah. So, you know, start taking him to church early. And I was like, you know, I haven't been going to my home church lately. Um, I've been watching Greg Boyd online. She was like, well, it's the community thing. And I was like, yeah, I have that with my AA. I mean, it's it's literally the exact thing. Tonight, I've got a, a you know, a small group of uh, its men and we're intimately connected in each other's lives. And these people showed up and have been helpful and are helping us get things ready. And it's like, OK, so I, I have that. Yeah. With AA. Yeah, that was just an, an interesting thought. Cause that's I told her too, I was like, Mom, the one of the big things I'm gonna try to do is make sure that my kid doesn't walk out of his room and and fear that we have been raptured or that he's gonna right. go to hell. I was like, I yeah. do not want that to happen for them. Yeah. It's scary, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a scary you guys, gonna, you guys are gonna do great, man. It's gonna Thank be good. You. Thank you. So we might, so let's say we agree that for a client that either of us is working with, or just, you know, if you've got a sponsee or someone in your group that's doing pretty well, you're, you're glad for that language, that broadening out language of God, as we understood him, you know, whatever higher power. But I think that for you and to some extent for me, like I I would want for people to have a bit more meat on the bone if they can. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I don't think there's a huge disagreement there. Now, for you, are you still at the point where there might be eternal stakes about that? Because that's always the question. If there are eternal stakes, if someone's faith commitments in this life may send their soul to heaven, hell, possibly purgatory, something like that, then obviously it will matter whether they merely have God as they understood him or if they have God, <laughs> you know, because right. I mean, depending on what you think the cutoff is for that God. And, and so I guess that's my question to you, where you're at yeah. currently, where, how do those stakes figure in? I do think they have eternal stakes. Yes. I no longer believe that those stakes involve eternal conscious torment. Yeah. My current belief is that the degree of someone's hell is going to be the purification, the saved as through fire. So 
Uh, the better you can do to burn off your own crap before you meet the all-consuming fire, the better off you're going to be. you got a bunch of stuff to burn off. It's going to hurt. So yes, but no, I don't think that they're risking eternal damnation. I don't, yeah. I don't believe that anymore. Did you notice a, a change in how you think about these issues as that topic changed for you? Yeah, it changed a whole lot. I mean, it's the question of if I knew for a fact there was no heaven or hell, what then? You know, if there is a God, but there is no heaven or hell, what then? But that's kind of a, that's a, it's an odd place for a Christian to end up or a former Christian to be, like to believe, yeah, there's still God. I know. And it's an impossible, there's no way to even ponder it on by, it's like an impossible. Why I think it may be important for myself and others to have a relationship with a specific God, namely Jesus, I and I'm working this out is because I think it it changed your life drastically. Now, where I've gotten confused is what life is is supposed to be. It, are we supposed to expect good things to happen if we are, you know, in God's will, that sort of thing? And should we expect bad things to happen if we are in self-will and, you know, how do, I, how do you avoid Santa Claus-ism with, with God if that is the case? Yeah. And because I went, I went through a situation recently, so the blessing at the end of this is my amazing fiancé and my new baby. Now, the almost life-ending scenario that brought me here if that didn't happen, I wouldn't have been brought here. And it just me up because it's like, was that the only way? So I had to go. Did I have to go through that degree of suffering to get here? And I know other people have, but I have suffered a lot in my life in, in unique ways that addiction can take you. And I had the thought of like, God, I don't want to, do I have to continue going through these like devastating experiences to experience the good. Simply what I'm talking about was like a divorce, basically. But a lot of things came with it and it just shook my world completely upside down and my thoughts about God and fate and was this planned, you know. Yeah. I still haven't landed on any solid ground as far as answers. Um, so what I usually try to default to now is just like, you know, trust God, God, God loves you. Um, and even if it's bad, it's going to be okay. And even if it's, it's, I just have to go back to the, the basics because my, my macro view got shattered. I mean, thank you for sharing that. First of all, I totally agree with you that a relationship with Jesus can change your life drastically. I mean, I, I don't think that that's controversial, I think that uh, even for those who have been burned by Christianity and and find that hard to believe, like it's just in the data. It just obviously does change many people's lives for just an incredible amount of good. And I think addiction spaces are one of the places where you can see it most clearly, along with prison populations, you know, places where there's a real uh, before and after situation. And 
Um, momentary or drastic conversion experiences are absolutely real at an empirical level. They do change people's brains and their lives. And even at a less drastic level, I mean, it's just easy to infer from the research as well that religion, religiosity and spirituality are just correlated with all these good things that we, we want for people. And then, of course, we have our personal experiences of uh, that relationship changing us. So I, I don't I don't take any umbrage with that point at all. I think we're fully in agreement. It's one of the reasons that I remain a Christian. Not the only reason. Where where I think I might have an angle on what you're talking about, I want to throw this at you and see what you think. So anything that we might call a prosperity gospel, the way that I tend to define prosperity gospel is that there is some formula where if you get your inputs right, there's a cosmic formula that will give you good outputs. Which is witchcraft, hilariously. I know. Well, well, I mean, actually, it's kind of it's kind of like science. It's like if okay, you drop yeah. an apple from the top of a tree, it's going to fall and hit the ground unless you do something else, right? So unless you put a little rocket pack underneath it, you know, and and you know, so it's it's as if there is some universal law of prosperity that God has baked into the universe. That's really the the logic behind it. And the specifics of that formula will change from preacher or writer to, to, to another. But what makes it prosperity gospel is that it is basically inviolable, right? Like that, it will work that way. And if it doesn't work out the way you thought, then you must have got your side of it wrong, right? And so that I think you and I would both agree is is not true. That's not in 100%. the Bible. It doesn't make any sense. Obviously, our world, the evidence in the real world does not suggest that such a formula is at play. But I've started to think about those kinds of claims less as a mathematical formula and more as like a, a probability statement or almost like if, if there's some randomness and chance, there's some kind of bell curve distribution of, of outcomes that's baked into the real world, that part does seem true. I mean, you can look at even like quantum physics, as I understand it at a very rudimentary level, you can plot out where an electron might be, even given the indeterminacy of quantum mechanics. And it looks kind of like a bell curve. It looks like there's a bunch of ones in the middle. There are these outliers on the side that are less likely. And that's just how a lot of things happen in our world. There's kind of a baked in chance. If you have two brown hair, brown eyed parents, you probably aren't going to be blonde with blue eyes. The middle of the bell curve is you're going to have brown hair and brown eyes. But every once in a while, you get a blonde hair, blue eyed kid because of the chance of which genes they're going to get. Right. There's just there's enough blue eyes somewhere back in the family that you get you get that kid. And so. I even think about some of scripture in this way. So think about, I pulled this up, James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Now, there's a real generic or kind of plain sense reading of that interpretation that could go something like this. Anytime you ask for wisdom, since God always gives generously, you will necessarily get the wisdom you need. And then you, and then maybe we can take it darker. If someone asks you why you believe something, you say, well, I asked God for wisdom and James 1, 5 tells me I'll get it. So I must have it. Therefore, I must be right about this thing we're disagreeing about. Right? So there's like a perfect formula way. I said this prayer like two days ago, by the way. 
I think it's, but I think it's a beautiful, <laughs> it's wonderful. Yeah, I think it's it a beautiful is. verse, but like, let's take a different interpretation of it. What if the sort of real world application of that verse is something like this? First of all, we've got gives generous, gives generously to all without finding fault. Okay. So if you are reminding yourself of God's fundamental posture of love and acceptance toward you, that's within the verse. So if you are using this verse to pray, you are being reminded of God's attitude toward you, which is not one where God is picking you apart, looking for all those little faults and saying, Hey, you don't have this wisdom yet. That's on you. I noticed that about you. It's like, no, who gives generously to all without finding fault. So first of all, you're reminding yourself of, of God's attitude toward you. And by the way, this is exactly what you and I do with our clients when we treat them with unconditional positive regard, which is a prerequisite for the most effective change coming from a client who's having a hard time, right? So mm-hmm. there's that. And then maybe the way it works out is like, look, if you have a hundred people and they go through the same situation and 50 of them pray this verse, asking God for wisdom, taking some time out of their morning or night, kind of slowing themselves down, being reminded of God's posture toward them, and then asking God for wisdom. Those 50 people are going to have better outcomes than the 50 other people who don't do that, who don't pause. They don't slow themselves down. They don't get kind of inward about it and think Mm. about it. And they don't remind themselves of something they believe about the creator of the universe's love for them. So like, that's not a if then 100% mathematical claim, but it's like a more often than not kind of a claim that I think is true and why not avail ourselves of it, but doesn't come with that baggage. Yeah, it's it, it can be as simple as, yeah, of course, the very act of, and I mean, it's, it's the acronym pause as well, but um, the very act of just slowing down thinking you're going to have a wiser decision about about a situation and you know i'm sure i could think of one or two but the vast majority of impasses in my life i have known what the right thing is there's that feeling what what's kind of happened i realize is i was so ate up with legalism and religious scrupulosity, like at an OCD level yeah. that I spent a year forcing myself, like not to go to church, missing a prayer or to say like, God, I trust you. And it's not about this magic word thing, but then you have AA that it's all about, you know, being in fit spiritual condition. And so if you are not doing certain things, you can drift away spiritually. And and I guess it's different for the addict or anyone dealing with any kind of chronic mental thing is that I do kind of have a gun to my head, like at all times to where if I don't, I mean, if the diabetic doesn't take insulin, they're going to go into coma. If, If I don't take my medicine, it will get me, and it is uh, a fatal dosis for addiction. So I swing this pendulum between like, okay, I don't, God, I don't have to do anything for you to love me and bless me. And then, but if I don't do certain things, 
I'm going to relapse and completely destroy my life and die. Okay, this is no, I mean, this is fantastic and yeah, and tough <clears throat> stuff. And again, thank you for being vulnerable and honest with it. And we also no can problem. cut out anything later if you decide you don't want it there. Dude, I'm an open book. Uh, the way that I'm kind of conceiving of what you're saying right now is there is an interesting and maybe even an unfortunate interaction between, on the one hand, the very real life stakes of your addiction. And the fact that if you go back there for a long enough period of time, you'll die and not have your life with your wife and your to be born child. Uh, and that is that's that's real uh, because you have experienced it and you sort of know what it can be like. So there's that on the one hand. And then there's this complicating factor in your particular story, which is some sort of obsessive compulsive disorder t- to some degree, at least earlier in your life. And I I don't know your current day diagnosis and you don't have to talk about that either. If you don't want to, that presents a a kind of a, it's a sticky wicket, right? Because the problem with, uh, and I'm not an OCD expert, but I, I have treated a handful of people and I've actually been talking with my supervisor about it recently, um, about some of the differences between the type of just distorted and inaccurate thoughts that we deal with in cognitive behavioral therapy, the kind of thoughts that everybody has sometimes by virtue of being a human and uh, OCD uh, type intrusive thoughts. I was just going to say it's B like I have. The, yeah, it's it's always the uh, intrusive thoughts. Yeah, well, and, and so he was telling me like, you know, one of the ways you can tell the difference between just like a regular thought that might be exaggerated or distorted, right? Which might be something like if you have the thought, I'm screwed. I will relapse and I will lose everything. Well, there's a cognitive distortion that we would call in that, which is you are predicting the future or jumping Mm -hmm. to conclusions. You know, you're catastrophizing. You're doing all or nothing. You're basically saying there is no version where that doesn't happen. And you're catastrophizing. You're only thinking of the worst version of the future and not considering the possibility that you stay sober and have a very happy family life, which you've actually been doing for many years now. Yeah. Right. So, however, that's so that would be a distorted regular thought in in the sense of like it's something that feels true. You do believe it sometimes, at least when you're feeling anxious or depressed, uh, when you might be in a state of panic, maybe when your amygdala is acting up and you've got a lot of adrenaline going through that might feel really true. A classic intrusive thought via OCD would be something like if I don't pray the Jesus prayer, uh, the sinner's prayer 50 times tonight, I'll go to hell. Like you don't actually believe that. No theologian says that you don't, there's no part of you that at any point thinks that's true. It is merely a compulsion and you do it. You do the prayer just to stop the compulsion, just to get rid of that, those repetitive thoughts. Right. So I don't, I don't know if that's kind of a lens that's worth talking through to the extent you want to talk about this. Uh, but it, you know, I never considered that my religious, uh, scrupulosity OCD was just the outward symptom that fit in the box of obsessive thought and the need to, um, quench it. Right. I I never thought because I assumed that I did believe it, that I did believe if I didn't go to hell, I wouldn't pray. If I yeah. didn't pray, I would go to hell. I, I th- thought I believed that. And I just, I never considered that 
oh, maybe it was, you know, if I was raised differently, uh, it would have been if I don't sing my favorite song, then my mom will get cancer or something. Do you think that for you, the idea of something with more bedrock to it, kind of more solidity, like there's a lot of of times where I wish, I mean, there's many, many times that I wish probably more often than not, I would prefer that I believed in something that had more solidity to it, more like the way I believe in gravity, you know, right. And being sold out for something, right. Where in your life do you think that you would just see clear benefits if you could have an even more kind of solid belief in the way that this stuff works? Like, where would it make your life better here and now? Lately, I've been thinking my my interaction with the world because I, I feel like I've just become a sharp harder, more cynical, you know, angrier, rougher type of person and and less capable of extending Christ-like love. And so it's like I've I have I don't really like the person I've been lately. Hmm. And I don't know it makes me like tears. Ugh, hold on. Take your time. Yeah, it's and that's 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 not a good feeling, you know. I would like, you know, I have this I absolutely have the desire that like I just want to please my parents, I just want to please God, I just want to you know, do well and and I mean, I just got a text from someone that, you know, made 18 months sober and they're thanking me for being a part of that. And it's like I I am doing good work, but yeah, I, guess I just have some internal stuff to to wrestle with. I don't I don't know. It's like I I just don't feel that lightness, that weightlessness and that kind of freedom and and that love that I f- I feel like I've had before. Maybe not, but that I guess that's what I'm after. Never, Wait, yeah. I mean, again. That's got kind of a new revelation. Yeah. Well, thank you for again, thank you for the vulnerability. So this kind of area of your life of of feeling this reduction in maybe joy and your own experience of kind of uh, reflecting God's love out to others, when you hear me or read my texts or whatever, kind of in this non-supernatural view of things, I'm wondering what that does to you. One idea I have is that it, it might feel like it robs, like if Dan's right, then it kind of robs the future of being able to be affected by this miracle working deity who wants my, my best and makes it seem less likely that you'll have a good future because you don't have that power in your pocket basically. And if that's not Mm. how it feels great, but I could imagine it might, maybe, maybe that's kind of one of the roles that, that these conversations that we have, you know, often quite playfully are actually having that kind of, you know, very serious effect. Simply. I just, don't believe that that's true. Okay. The the only thing that is potentially negative is you know with like you and Josh and basically uh, Josh you know, Patterson of are, Rethinking Faith by the way. Yeah, that's who you're talking and, about. And uh, Jace Broadhurst. It's like these people more often I'm envious and jealous of y'all's ability to have these beliefs and thoughts without 
worry of consequence or willy nilly. I mean, y'all just seem confident in them and relaxed and there doesn't seem to be too much inner struggle going on. And I recognize the obvious fallacy in that because it's, you know, I don't know what's going on when you laid your head down at night, right. but that's, that's the main thing is, is, is an envy and kind of confusion of like, well, what the hell? Like, so. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, so I don't have perfect confidence, you know, in, in my, beliefs about God or the way the universe works. Not at all. I would say, is this a distorted thought that might be true or some version of it is true versus what we might call more of like just an intrusive thought that I really don't believe. You know, I occasionally, for instance, around the Israel Hamas stuff, which I've been, I posted, I did a little short episode. There's a full episode that'll come out probably before this one about it. Like, you know, there's like, 1% 1% of me that thinks like the left behind vision of the world is true. I don't know that I'll ever extinguish that 1%. <laughs> sure. Um, but if you ask me, Dan, what's the evidence? What is the actual evidence that would stand up in a court that would stand up to a third party observer? And this is language I use a lot with my clients, especially trauma clients, you know, a third party observer would go, yeah, that, that counts as, as evidence. I would say uh, the prediction that Israel would become a state, which you could also get to that prediction through other means being an astute geopolitical observer or, you know, just the fact that there are these people living all over the world and there's there's no specific place for them to live and they've been persecuted for millennia. <laughs> you know, you could get there like other than that, I, I, there's really like no evidence. I mean, there are just countless failed predictions and every, hey, maybe this is Gog and maybe this is Magog. I mean, maybe. <laughs> and no, and anytime anybody has ever said, I really think this, they've been wrong. And, not, and there's other problems too with sort of like there's a very incoherent and inconsistent uh, interpretation method that those people use. Plus, there's my problems with the scripture being that kind of inerrant, like, you know, especially when you get into the math of end times predictions and the weeks and the days in the book of Daniel, you basically have to believe that God put those exact numbers in there or else the math wouldn't work. And I just, I don't think there's evidence that the Bible is that specifically accurate to the point of essentially mathematical precision, right? That's an issue where, no, I can't extinguish that final 1% because I just did believe it for 10 or so years of my life. And that's going to leave sort of like a neurological mark. And, you know, maybe eternal conscious torment's a little bit harder because, man, you know, there are occasional times where I think, man, some things seem like they might deserve at least tempor- temporary oh. conscious torment. I, uh, but no. I can never get to eternal. I mean, I can, no. I can no, never no, no. get to that's just. So then in that case, it's like, well, is there a chance that there's an unjust God? Sure, there's a chance. Uh, if there is, is there anything I can do? Probably nothing, you know, like, no. And so those are possible. I do not have much of a history with religious scrupulosity or OCD symptoms. I have a little bit on, on the margins, but not that never caused me a lot of distress. And so I, I think that I, I just live with that imperfect score on those issues. But what I'm trying to do is lean into the stuff that, if you hold my head hand to the fire, 
if you put a gun to my head and say, Dan, what do you actually think is probably true given everything? I just, I just try and go with that. Um, and it's not to say I have no doubts, but it just seems to me like I, I don't see an argument for I should not go with the thing I think is true. Right. Just like you, when you're saying like, no, I just disagree with you, Dan, about the supernatural stuff. And then I think you should disagree. Like, I think you got to go with what you actually think is true. That's, that's integrity. I don't know. How, how does that feel to hear that? Like what's, what's that like to hear that response? I mean, I don't know. I guess at this point it's accepting of, of what, you know, sort of like whatever works. It takes us back to the AA conversation, right? It's like, and I think it does. And so I maybe it's humility maybe is, is, is involved. Yeah. I mean, when I'm, when I'm wanting to think of it kindly, I would call it intellectual humility. And this will probably air once the existentialism it will certainly air once my existentialism class with trip is either going or concluded. Yeah. But like, you that know, looks super cool by the way. Thank you. But those issues dealing with those existential concerns, which is one of my favorite things to do in therapy with people is living in that tension, sort of that suspended moment of not knowing of imperfect approach to, to whatever it is. And that takes effort. And I mean, you, you almost have to stabilize yourself kind of a thing, but that's not so dissimilar from the work that people have to do when they are grieving a loss or when they are processing trauma. Right. So there's, there's a kind of steadying yourself and you gotta, you gotta fucking dive in here. This is not going to be easy, mm -hmm. but we have to do it mm -hmm. and gird your loins. Exactly. Gird your loins. And, and that's kind of how I feel about this stuff is like where, where, where I end up with what you might call a humanistic Christianity, I don't end up there because I wanted to end up there, I don't think. But I'll finish this thought by saying, I think I end up at that Christianity because to my mind, the evidence points to not a kind of a more sure bedrocky worldview. I, I don't think the evidence substantiates it. Whereas I do think I can substantiate a bit more loosey goosey, you know, God slash, you know, object of our ultimate concern, ultimate reality, whatever language you want to give for it. I think there's a defensible view of the world that includes that, but the defensible version has a lot fewer details <laughs> in it, basically. Hmm. And I would like it to have more and maybe someday I will think it has more. But at the moment, I'm just being honest. As Martin Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. And a lot of people uh, want to lionize that, that view of his, as long as he's agreeing with them and going against the Catholic church, you know, but like, I right. think that the posture has to be the same. Uh, Martin Luther also, by the way, just a vilely anti-Semitic human being. So he had, he had some dark sides, but like, <laughs> you know, that, that's kind of, that is where it is for me. And I, I but I want to leave out that there could be part of it for me that is, I want to do the shit I want to do. And this Christianity or this version of things lets me off the hook for if I want yes. to engage in things I used to think were wrong. I, I don't want to say that there's none of that. And so when you're ready, I do want to kind of pivot to depravity and, and originalism. Yeah, no, I'm good. You Yes, let's do it. Okay. So let's enter the pit. Let's enter the pit. So this is, this is interesting stuff. I, I do, you know, my personal view on 
total depravity or original sin or whatever. I like the orthodox understanding of what they call ancestral sin. It's basically a capacities-based view of sin that human beings with sufficient mental and physical capacity, generally that is sort of middle of the bell curve, biological homo sapiens, right? We have such a powerful brain and the capacity for moral choice and whatever that given the finite world that we are born into, we will end up choosing in a way that benefits ourselves at the cost of others, selfishly, sinfully. We, yeah. we have the capacity and the only people who won't do that are people who never develop that level of capacity generally through intellectual or other kinds of disabilities. And that is why really little babies, we don't think of them as sinning because they don't have the capacity to do that. Uh, I, I disagree with some views that say a child like wanting to do their own thing against their parents' wishes is like evidence. I, I, I think that's misunderstanding the developmental phase of a baby. Right. Right. I think we'd agree on that. But so, so that's my view of depravity and sin. And I'm fully comfortable with that. If you want to call that original sin or whatever, that's fine. I don't believe it's like passed you, down so sexually as a, a trait or something like that. Would you say that you would sum it up as as just human beings are self-centered? Is that what? Yeah, I mean, sure. I think I mean, I think self-centered is a pretty good term for it. Uh, I would just say we inevitably make some of our decisions in a way that is not loving, that prioritizes our temporary desires over other people's desires or needs and then leads to some sort of evil and unjust outcome that we all will do that inevitably. And we'll continue to do that throughout our lives as human beings. Then I think we, we essentially believe the same thing, but I guess there's, there's going to be some differences. So, and I guess I'm just going with like, what, what do I consider depravity or, yeah. or original sin or whatever? All right. As far as, you know, causes and who started it and is it really one person's singular fault that the entire world is destroyed um or you know the watchers and the nephilim got involved with uh human depravity but taking all that aside just observationally anecdotally sociologically I just view the world and human beings in particular as inherently selfish to the to the degree of of depraved. Um, everyone yeah. has that capability, and I think everything in place to tail that are just uh, social constructs. Given the right set of circumstances, would would crumble and people would eat each other. Um, okay, interesting. Let's pause there. Okay. Because I think there's a disagreement there. You trying I, to eat some people? No, I would. I would argue that actually a lot of our cooperation and our altruism, the sort of better angels you might say of our nature, I actually think that's also baked into the same cake. So, I, and I think that there are you know evolutionary uh, well, psychologists and biologists who have argued for that based on you know etc. Do you think there's pure altruism? I don't know that there's pure anything. I mean, I, I, I guess. It depends on... I don't think so. I, I think everything we do yeah. is selfish. Well, Kant thought that too. Kant, or Kant said, Kant. look, you can imagine Immanuel Kant... Could be Kant, a Kant, Dan. <laughs> Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, 
he was trying to look for like the purely unselfish action. And he was like, well, suppose somebody gave their life for someone else and did not believe there would be any afterlife in it for them. In this very extreme situation, we could call that like pure unselfishness or whatever. I, I don't, it's not a thing I spend a lot of time thinking about. The point being, right. we don't see a lot of pure altruism in our life, but I don't necessarily think that's a problem. I actually, like, for instance, think about having kids. So one of the things that having Soren made me think about a lot, and I'm thinking about it fresh again as Jeffrey is pregnant, is that I kind of just get to go for the ride, right? Like I'm not, there's nothing that I'm choosing about, not, not really about the way that my anticipation grows naturally as her belly grows, the way that I will get to, I'll be flooded with this cocktail of neurotransmitters. She'll be flooded with even more of them. Ooh, I can't wait for that. Right? So, so that's just a ride that we get to go on. That's not anything we chose. It is baked into the cake of our own birth and existence, which as a theist, I consider to be a gift from God. But it's not the kind of thing that like, oh, in order to get the purest joys of human experience, I have to sort of like shackle myself and become like an ascetic monk and like reach the highest heights of, of cosmic God consciousness. No, no. I just get to experience, you know, the, the fatherhood side of childbirth and of a new life in my family. I get that kind of for free, not totally for free. Like we've talked about, I have to be consistent enough that my partner will want to stay with me. You know, I do have to do certain things, but it comes as a natural course of things. And I think of altruism and selfishness as part of the natural course of things, you know? So if, I don't know if that helps kind of shed light there. Uh, yes. And I think that just means the natural order of things is that humans are depraved, but also huh. capable of good. I, I guess that's what I want to add that in. Oh yeah. yeah. Well you can't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because you cannot have dark without light. You can't have good without bad mm -hmm. as a, as a reference point. Yeah. 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 So, and I, I guess more further to the point is that, and this is my big, this is my big issue with um, the new age enlightenment type things is I believe that on our own power, we cannot overcome and become more Christ-like. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that the solution is within like that. If I just, you know, tap into my highest, most inner self that everything will be solved. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's how it works. Okay. But where do you draw the line? So imagine someone who does the examine prayer nightly and in the morning, uh, it's a, it's a Catholic prayer where you kind of go through your day and you look for evidence of God's presence and you oh, and you look forward. Sounds you, awesome. It is awesome. And you look no, toward look. the next day and you kind of think about what you'll be doing that day. And you kind of imagine how you might do that with the love of God sort of, you know, behind you. That is a, a, a process that someone can go through. They can choose to do it nightly. You said evaluation. Uh, for examine. E-X-A-M-E-N. E yeah. Uh, I'll have Josh put a link to an examine prayer in the notes as well for cool. listeners. But like, so is that, quote, 
on our own effort, unquote, or is God involved in that? And if God's involved in that, then is God not involved in sort of any endeavor that we take to sort of keep ourselves where we want to be? I think he, I think the Holy Spirit is. Okay. Um, and so is the Holy Spirit involved in any AA adherent who uses the God of their own understanding to not take a drink? Yeah. Okay. I think, yeah, 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 yeah. But those might, but those might be in a quote, humanist, humanistic Christianity or not even Christianity, a humanistic spirituality sense. Like, here's where I think the rub is, Jed. I think it's not so much that you and I disagree about where God is at work. I think the difference is that given your experience and the work that you do, which I think is very reasonable, you feel like you want a stronger check on the human tendency to act out of self-interest at others' expenses. That the I think the real concern is not so much that we can't pretty much see eye to eye on what God's up to in our ways of, of seeing. It's more that that somebody who goes along to get along in terms of their beliefs about God, that they take a path of lower resistance, sort of of having to maybe submit to something of having to kind of get in line with what a group or the teacher or denomination teaches that what they'll end up with is a softer check on those impulses, which will then not serve them well. And it will be less power for them to stay on the path that they need to stay on. Do you think that that's right? Yes. Yes. I, I do not disagree. And I guess that I would just say, I think that that there must be truth to that. There surely must be people for whom that is definitely true. And I would just not put it as a categorical. So all the way back to our first conversation about people in people who are trying to stay sober, I would, I would think of that as probably very individual. And so for some people, certain words, certain practices, even prayer itself might be triggering, might have certain meanings for them that ultimately will not help them have a check on that sinfulness, that tendency to act out of self-interest at others' expense. And for other people, probably the statistically average person, being involved in in more robust language, community, shared ritual, whatever, will give them that stronger check um, with the caveat that we don't want, you know, unhealthy spiritual communities where leaders are being abusive and all that, which of course we agree on. So do we think we agree on that? The human depravity thing, basically? I think, well... I guess we, we might not agree on the degree. I think it's probably the degree. And and I so I would say, like, I think that probably my average listener, the average former evangelical, is kind of allergic to the idea uh, that, hey, if you're not really submitting yourself to God fully, then you're not going to be able to really do this thing right because we all have experienced so much legalism, you know, in that mm, uses language yeah. kind of yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But if I'm honest with myself, I think, sure, there, there, there must surely be times where I am like letting myself off the hook because that's one of the things that people do. Now the question is then, okay, so let's say we agree on that, but can or should I change my beliefs because of that. And I don't know. I'm agnostic on that. What is that a good reason to change beliefs? That's an interesting question to me. Wait, I don't, I don't follow that. Meaning should, should a listener, for instance, go, huh, you know what? 
I should find something more systematic and kind of less woo woo or less, you know, like more concrete. Mm. That's, that's an interesting question. Maybe some listeners should, and maybe some shouldn't. And I, I don't think I'm confident on how I would distinguish that. That's where I've been stumped before. And I realized, I think it was, oh, I don't remember the circumstances, but it was something like talking to a, uh, my uh, Muslim friend who amazing human being. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't really have any leg to stand on to say, Hey man, you know, this shit that's making your life better. It actually is not right. You need to do this. And it was like, Oh yeah, I don't, I don't don't. And by the way, that's, that's a really interesting thing. When you talk about the, the like empirical evidence for the value of religion, People I've talked to who speak to more conservative audiences, they always are mentioning, and by the way, it it doesn't only show up for Christianity. It shows up for other religious systems as well. And what a lot of conservative Christians will assume or hope to find in that evidence is that Christianity obviously outperforms these other religions, but it it doesn't appear to, not in any, in any drastic way. And that is, so that your, your Muslim friend makes me think of that. Yeah. And I, so this was, um, a thought that just came to me too. And I've had it before, but I think, you know, going back to that, I have to go through that stuff for this good thing to happen. Um, I have always said, and I, I still do believe that, especially in the West, we live in a place so situated that you could go your entire life and never need God. You could do, you could be fine. Okay. If you so choose that with, Find another God to make to make it through. Hold on, let me finish. Depending on what you mean by God, sure. Uh, I mean, like any sort of any sort of like praying, spiritual practice, anything. None of that. Okay, conscious sort of conscious, specific spiritual practice. You can. I mean, some people can. Some people can live without that. I don't think everybody could in the modern world. No, no. But I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm saying, at the very least, a, a large. Especially, you know, in times of extreme comfort and prosperity, yeah. it's just like uh, you didn't need to do much, right? And, and I think, and I still believe that I would rather be consistently. It's like I didn't have a choice. I mean, I mm-hmm. did, but I did not. It's like I had to change my life. I had to yeah. get better. I had to get a better relationship. I had if I wanted to live, and and it's. You know, maybe I'm just burning off the stuff early. You know, that's I mean, I know some of it is for sure because it's it's extremely painful. It's even mm-hmm. the parts of myself that I loathe. It is so painful to that cancer out. And it's such a weird thing. So it's like I would rather this life than just a vanilla bare bones just kind of do what I want to do my entire life and just kind of have this spiritually non-eventful existence. Yeah, I, I love how clear you are being with the connection between your lived experience and this topic. I think that's really helpful. I think it helps other people place place it within their experience. And there's probably going to be some people who go, man, that sounds like me. And there's going to be other people that go, I get that, but that's not how it is for me, you know? And, and so I think there's a lot of variability around that. 
I think we can kind of summarize it here and, and wrap it up that I, I don't think there's a I don't think there's a disagreement that there can be a version of spirituality or even sort of progressive Christianity that at least for a season exists in part to get us off the hook. I think where we probably differ is our intuition on how common that is. There's also some interesting sort of theological differences where what do you count as God at work? And I think that I would, maybe I count more of it, you know, would kind of drop into my category as like God working more things and different things. Maybe we have different categories there, but I think the real rub is like, how strong is that check going to be on our tendency to act selfishly? And, and so I get that you want a real strong check and uh, that makes perfect sense to me. And I get that. I think sometimes that strong check in its desire to, to be helpful for people and to be a strong check goes beyond its pay grade in the claims that it makes about God and the world. In the distance, it allows itself to go from the more carefully gathered data that we have and, and that people have analyzed and therefore will only reach, will either reach only some people for whom it feels helpful and accurate and will turn off some people and end up being incorrect in some of those ways. I don't know. I think that's a pretty good way to synthesize it. I mean, it's been an incredible conversation. I'm so grateful for your yeah. honesty. But you know what's funny? You want to hear something, something funny? Is uh, I I came into this thinking this was the, the, the metal core. Good vibration. No, you didn't. You seriously did. I swear. You thought we were doing the, the 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 post hardcore tournament. That that's 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 why when you said uh, he's also been on pretty good vibrations, I was like, wait a minute. Oh my gosh. Wait a minute. We had we had texted about great. both. I know. You know how it goes, man. I'm having a baby, dude. There's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, but I, I love it because I mean, dude, I needed it. That's a this was a great conversation. That's incredible. Um, I don't I don't even necessarily know that i have a summary except okay no 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 this like things like this what just happened that is my reinforcement that don't cry again that god is real that Mm. god loves me and that he i didn't know i needed this today i didn't know this was going to happen i didn't know this conversation was going to happen and holy crap you know it's and even having that realization it's just a it's a little gift to be like dude i am here i do care Mm. Wow, man, that's that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, people go check out Church and Other Drugs, Jed's podcast. Just don't listen to any of the Nephilim episodes. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you unless you're afraid of the truth. (laughs) Now people will watch. I'll just make more people listen to those. Probably Uh, Jed, thanks so much. And yeah, people can if they do want to hear us talk music, you can they can go listen to the Screamo tournament episodes of Pretty Good Vibrations and. One of these days, we will record our post-hardcore tournament as well, which I'm very much looking forward to. Jeff Payne, thanks so much for your time, man. Thank you.
Fall!